Well, walking on water is apparently like one of the top tricks to try and achieve for any magician. If you read about it, it's, it's the one that they, they, they reach for and aspire to. It's a really tough thing to pull off. You can do it as a trick. Uh, in 2011, maybe you'll remember, the street magician and illusionist Dynamo uh, walked on the River Thames. He managed to walk about 100 yards on the river with a crowd of people there watching him from the bridge. Very, very good. Look at it on YouTube. Uh, and then he was taken away at some certain point by a convenient police boat that came past, uh, and he hopped up into that, and, and off they went. It was a clever illusion. It's a great trick. Uh, I mean, you could, if you look on YouTube again, everyone wants to tell you how we did it as well. So, you know, it, it's a well-known sort of trick, but that's all it was. Just a trick, an illusion. It's been done many times before, actually. Generally, it's using plexiglass uh, and platforms and different things that are just under the surface of the water that you can't see. Now, there have been those who claim <laughs> that, that the same thing is true about what Jesus did in this passage. Um, that's peculiar. As is usually the case, most of the suggestions about these things are are really silly because, and, and the re I think the reason they're so silly is because the people putting forward these ideas haven't actually really opened the Bible, if they're honest, and looked at the details of what the eyewitnesses saw. There have been, uh, let me give you a few examples. Um, one theory put forward by, by people is to suggest that Jesus walked in shallow water near the shore. I think about that one. So, you know, the disciples were taken in by this. It was just actually just shallow, shallow water, somewhere near the shore. But Mark, even here, as we read through it, doesn't he? He says, where was the boat? The boat was in the middle of the lake when Jesus walked out to them. And then there's suggestions, obviously, about clever flotation devices, which I think are even sillier. I mean, imagine trying to keep balance on something in the middle of a wind and, and storm. Perhaps... It was an illusion that fooled the disciples. Perhaps they just hallucinated the whole thing, suggest others. But Matthew tells us about Peter getting out of the boat <laughs> and walking to Jesus and sinking. It was a very, very real event. Now, this was an incredible miracle. It's an incredible miracle when you think about it. So you can, again, this is one of those miracles, isn't it, where you can, you can fake a lot of stuff but it seems to me that feeding 5,000 or more people and walking into the middle of a lake during a storm, miles out into the lake, they, they defy any explanation other than the supernatural. Well, there are two things I want us to see in the text this morning. We'll break it up into two parts. The first is the miracle, the miracle of what's uh, just been reported to us. And the second is... Interestingly, a parable. So we've got to hear a miracle and a parable. So first of all, make no mistake, it's a powerful miracle. And the three gospel writers that record it, that is Matthew, Mark, and John, that they're all using this story to make that point. This is miraculous. This here is evidence of the godness of Jesus, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they, they tell them to prove that point at the very least. See, there have been prophets in the past, and, and everybody at the time even would know that there had been great prophets in the past. 
through whom God did incredible wonders, powerful things, and worked many, many miracles. So you'll remember Elijah and Elisha. I mean, they both called down fire from heaven that consumed offerings, or actually, in, in some occasions, consumed people. These were huge miracles, weren't they? They were miraculously fed by God and provided for. By, by, do you remember both of them stories of food that just multiplies and feeds them and looks after them? They even raised the dead, the great prophets of the past. Now, you could clearly see that God was working through these men in marvellous ways, incredible stories. But nobody would ever really have drawn the conclusion that this is evidence that there were anything more than men. Prophets, great prophets, but men, men through whom God was working. But with Jesus, it's quite different actually here, isn't it? There's something very first-hand in the way he performs these wonders. Have a think about it. No one before Jesus has ever said anything in the Scriptures, anything as outrageous as, son, your sins are forgiven. That's, that is an outrageous statement to make. No prophet would ever have said that, like Jesus did to the paralytic. Do you remember? He did these things with his own authority. Not a borrowed authority, his own authority. Think about what we've just seen last week. Moses gave the people bread from heaven in the wilderness. Remember the story last week? Feeding of the 5,000? But that story in the wilderness with Moses, in that story, the bread came from whose hand? From the hand of God. It came directly from the hand of God, didn't it? There it was in the morning. It's not that Moses was out during the night sprinkling the stuff around the camp. No, they woke up in the morning, and from heaven, bread had come. But the bread and the fish, they came from the hand of Jesus, straight from the hand of Jesus. Jesus actually takes the place of God in these parallels. It's a detail you mustn't miss. Now, I want you just to do a little cross-reference. We don't often do this. Um, a lot of you like to flick through your Bibles. That's good. Can you turn with me to Job chapter 9? Let's look at this together. Job chapter 9, and you'll find it on page 515. 515. And here you've got, if you're familiar with Job, Job is responding to one of his miserable comforters. Uh, this time it's Bildad who is urging him that he must, Job, you must turn back to God because God always blesses blameless people. That's his logic. And Job's got a hunch, hasn't he already, that God is much, much bigger than that. That it's not as straightforward as that with God. And he responds by describing the awesome power of the creator God in Job chapter 9. Have a look with me from verse 1. Job replied, these are wonderful verses, these. Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can a mortal be righteous before God? Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time in a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place 
and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that, no, that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. <clears throat> That's a staggering description of God, isn't it? Did you catch the line there that we just read, though? Verse 8, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Some of the early church fathers actually saw this as a direct prophecy of this very, para- this, this very miracle that we've read about. The one who made the sea controls the sea. He controls his creation. He rules his creation. The sea serves him because he is the creator of the sea. It does what it's told. For the disciples, at least, this should have been completely conclusive, shouldn't it? It should have been. I mean, as Jesus walks out in the middle of the storm and then climbs up into the boat, this is not just another prophet. This isn't another prophet. Not even the greatest of the prophets, John the Baptist, back from the dead. You know, all that speculation that's going on at the time. And yet, have a look at verses 51 and 52 here in our passage. If you flip back to Mark, two, uh, Mark 6, it's a staggering conclusion. Verse 51, the end of verse 51, they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Now, and when you read through this story, that is the sentence that stands out in a way, isn't it? That the question mark pops up, doesn't it? They were completely amazed. Why were they amazed? Because they hadn't understood about the loaves. And you think to yourself, what? They hadn't understood about the loaves? But do you see the significance of the loaves? Who brings bread from heaven? From whose hand does that come? Only the Almighty God. They haven't understood about the loaves. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? Their fear and their amazement at what Jesus does does here are, are explained by Mark by that inability to grasp the significance of what's just happened beforehand. The disciples knew full well, didn't they? They had nothing to offer the multitudes, just four little loaves. That's all they could rustle up. And Jesus had blessed that small offering, and he had handed it to them. And as they began to distribute it, well, the supply just kept, kept on coming, didn't it? More and more, coming from nowhere. Until finally, think about the scene, picture it in your mind. Finally, they are standing in a field full of people, you know, villagers with full bellies, and scattered around them everywhere is scraps of bread, just everywhere, laid out around them, littered. Bread from, bread from Jesus. Bread from heaven. The light should have gone on there and then, really, shouldn't it? Suddenly, the, the healings, the calming of the storm. It all makes sense. Why? Because this is God. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. But this is actually, inexplicably, God in the flesh. It, it is actually the logical conclusion, but a very, very hard conclusion to, to grasp, isn't it? 
And they just couldn't believe it. And verse 52 tells us why. The reason they couldn't believe this is because their hearts were hard. Their hearts were hardened. You know, that's what always keeps people from really recognizing who Jesus is. Always keeps them from it. Hard hearts. And hearts can be hardened by all kinds of different ways, can't they? And we've seen it as we've gone through the gospel. Hearts can be hardened by pride. You know, like the religious establishment in Jesus' day. Proud, envious of Jesus. They don't like him because he clashes with them and it riles them and their pride is, is inflamed, isn't it? And their hearts are hardened up. Or hardened by sin. Hardened by not wanting to let go of those things that you love, the pleasures that you love. Just like Herod, remember? Loved to hear, but what a hard heart. Just couldn't respond. Or hardened by scepticism. Hardened by doubts. It can't be true. I think that's the hardness of the disciples here. Isn't it? And, and actually, the sobering thing is, I don't think I would have responded any differently, would you? See, I could perhaps, in that day, with that Jewish background, have accepted that this was maybe another great prophet. I mean, a really great prophet, working wonders even beyond what other prophets have done before. I mean, they've been around before, haven't they? You can explain those. But the Son of God, that is a big thing to swallow here, isn't it? It's just a step too far. See, it's understandable, isn't it? But the frightening thing is that that actually, that scepticism actually leaves them somewhat in the same camp as Jesus' enemies are. They're in the same camp, aren't they? Hard hearts. It's a, it's, it should shock us that that's the description of the disciples, isn't it? We want to think that, no, they're the soft-hearted ones. You know, like us, soft hearts. But no, hardness of heart there too. And it is going to take the patience of Jesus to deal with these disciples, to make anything from them. It is going to be within the next two chapters. Don't worry that the penny will drop. But their sad and blind, reluctant state shouldn't really surprise us because it always takes a work of God to soften hard hearts, to overcome that pride and scepticism and the, the love of sin in the heart of, of anyone. And so their response here is another timely reminder for us, isn't it, that no amount of evidence, no amount of compelling explanation will ever convince and turn anyone's heart on its own, will it? It, it won't. I've stood here and looked at hard-hearted faces many, many times. We must always be praying. We must be praying for a softening of the hearts of those that we speak to. Don't ever stop doing that. It takes a supernatural work of God, doesn't it, to open people's eyes to the, to the reality, to the truth. And so this story here demonstrates, first of all then, to us, a miracle. A miracle that confirms again, yet more evidence, the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the Son of God, only God in the flesh, could have done the things that Jesus does. But that's not all that we have here. We also have a parable. 
we have a parable, and that's actually where I want to focus most of our attention this morning, surprisingly. So there's your introduction. It's a miracle. Here's, here's now the meat, really, of it. See, the early church understood this incident in the Gospels in this particular way. They understood it as being like a parable. And it certainly fits with the flow of the chapter. I want you to see that. But, but think about it for a second. Think about how church history has worked out. I mean, you may not know very much about church history, but anyone who's been through RE in school will know the names of all the different bits of a church, right? You've all been taken on a school trip at some point when you were a child, shown around an Anglican church or stuff. Do you know what, what they call the bit where the congregation sits? What's that called? Does anyone know? The nave. That's right. It's the nave, which is the Latin word for a ship. It was purposely given that name because you're all sitting in the boat right now. You're sitting in a ship, the Latin word nave, like where we get navel from, yeah? Ship. You're in the ship. You are sitting there in the boat right now. Now, Jesus knows that he doesn't have huge amounts of time to be putting into his disciples. He can't, he can't waste time. His time, he's on the clock. He's heading to the cross and he is putting them through some full-on rigorous training for the ministry that he's called them to, sitting in that boat there. Now, we are not Jesus' 12 apostles, but there is much that the church, even in our day, needs to learn from this chapter that Mark's laid out for us. Remember, he's writing, he's writing his gospel for those that come after these events. He's writing his gospel for us. We are the ones that the apostles have were told to teach, to obey everything that Jesus had commanded. And we sit in the ship together, like the disciples in the story. And God's message, you see, this is what Jesus is doing, what he's doing with his disciples in this chapter as we're working through it. His message must be preached. That's our calling, isn't it? To go and preach the message. You're hearing it week after week now, aren't you? You're being told. <laughs> and I hope it's, you're almost getting fed up. When are you moving on, Andy? From telling us we've got to go out and preach the gospel. But that's the point of this chapter. It's a message that must be preached. But preaching is tough. And I guess we're all finding that through life. It's tough. It's a tough job, isn't it? Look at verse 48 here. Mark has a picture for us, doesn't he? Verse 48, the disciples, there they are, they're straining at the oars. That's what we've been called to do. You're, heading, you're in the boat, you're heading out into the water, and you are straining at the oars, and the wind is blowing against you, and the storms are coming. The disciples will be heading out into many storms. Jesus' disciples do. We've got to head into those storms. Let me remind you, even Jesus himself was continually misunderstood, wasn't he, in his ministry? And in fact, you remember that story at the beginning of Mark chapter 6. We keep saying it, don't we? In Nazareth, there he is, rejected by the people who, of all people, had all the evidence, should have known better, should have accepted him in his hometown in Nazareth. And yet Jesus assigns the task of carrying on this ministry to his disciples, Hot on the heels of himself having been rejected. He sends them out, warning them again about rejection. Battered by the winds again. The rejection that they'll inevitably face in the towns they visit. And then, of course, we, we finish that trio of stories about preaching with the story of John the Baptist. The grisly fate of John, who spoke the truth to the king and lost his head for it. It's tough work. 
You're going to have to pull on those oars. Yet we saw last week that despite the fickleness, the hardness of the hearts of the crowds and the multitudes, Jesus' heart breaks for them. Their needs are so great. The sheep need leading and the sheep need feeding, don't they? And when the work's handed over to the disciples, they find that they're completely inadequate for the task. Unless they bring what they have to Jesus. And so we have one final ministry lesson here. Chapter 6. The last one in chapter 6. So yes, this ministry of taking the gospel to those in serious spiritual need is, is a tough work and it's a frightening work. But... There's some encouragement here right at the end, isn't there? It's best summed up in verse 50. Look. He spoke to them and said, and this is speaking to them, in the midst of their fears, in the midst of the situation, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. If you get those words, if those words get into your heart this morning, they are very, very powerful. I think they make the world a difference when we face the things that we need to face in serving the Lord Jesus. So Mark writes to the church through the ages to remind us of these essential truths. Let me give you three. First of all, the first truth here is that he sends. He sends. As soon as the feasting on the fish and bread is over and the scraps have been gathered, verse 45, have a look at it. Verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, and to go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd. See, the disciples are reluctant here. They have to be made to do something. Evidently, they did not want to leave. You know, remember the crowds? The crowds have been whipped up into like a, a frenzied state of, of excitement here in this event. John's recorded for us, doesn't he, that they're, they're, they're plotting to try and make Jesus king, king of the Jews by force. It's an exciting time. The disciples want to be there for this. But Jesus forces them into the boat. He, he, he chivies them along. He pushes them into the boat. It's like children on a, on a day out to the theme park, all hyped up and excited and full of sugar. And then it's time to go home. Time to go home, trying to get them off things, get them out of queues. It's funny, ours never want to leave the house in the first place. And then when you take them out anywhere, they never want to come home. Jesus knew what that was like, trying to chivy people along like that. Jesus has to herd them onto the boat. The word there is a strong word he made them. It is to compel. You can almost picture Jesus finally getting the last onto the boat and then giving it a good shove out into the water. Get going. Now, why emphasize this? Because we should all remember, always remember, shouldn't we, that it is Jesus who sends. He sends. He puts us on the way. He tells us to do these things. He puts us in the boat here. He sends people out on mission. Go, he tells his disciples, including you and me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Those words are for you and me, aren't they? They were said to the 12 apostles, but did you catch the last sentence there? teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, which is to go and to make disciples of all nations and to teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Isn't it? 
It's a self-perpetuating mission, isn't it? To every generation of the church. And Jesus knows full well what lies ahead. The straining, the struggling, the wind that will be against them. And yet it is he who puts them in that situation. It's a parable for them. The author Kent Hughes writes, I think, quite uh, descriptively of this. He says this, look, think of the disciples' misery in that open cockpit with their feet soaking in icy bilge water, straining at the oars for seven to eight hours. Ironically, the disciples were in this miserable trouble because they obeyed Jesus. What a lesson for the church. Imagine what disobedience could have gotten these men that night. Perhaps a full stomach, a warm bed in someone's home, an opportunity to regale their hosts with stories about Jesus. It was obedience that made them so uncomfortable. Their misery was their own fault. If you submit your life to Christ in obedient commitment, you will expose yourself to a variety of sorrows. Your caring, your commitment to biblical living will make you vulnerable to things that the uncommitted heart will never experience. You don't don't need to obey, don't need to get into the boat, but if you do, see? But that is not the end of the story. Verse 46, pick it up with me. After leaving them, Jesus went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. So my second point is this. He sees. He sends, but he sees. Jesus saw them. Much like a parent, isn't it? Or keeping that eye. The children don't even know you're watching, but you've got, got the eye on them. You don't want them to come to harm. Jesus might send the disciples out to a stormy lake without him, but he never lets them out of his sight. That's really the picture we've got here, isn't it? They're never out of his sight. Even when he decides to walk across the lake, he walks right, right, he's going to go right, right past them, wants to see them, wants to keep an eye on them. Now, that's very comforting, isn't it? He knows exactly what his disciples are enduring at any point in the journey. He sees when you're straining against the pressures and the temptations of the world around you. He sees. And secondly, if you look there, you can be sure he's, when he's praying, isn't Jesus praying for them, don't you think? He's praying for them. He's looking on them. He's praying for them. Because he always lives to intercede on behalf of his people. You know, in the book of Mark, there are only three references to Jesus praying. Each of them comes at a crisis point in the book, a point of important decision. In chapter 1, you remember Jesus prays because of this huge pressure on him. Will his ministry be a miracle-working ministry or a preaching ministry? That's a huge decision that has to be made, isn't it? At the end of the book, you've got another crisis point. Jesus is praying in the garden. Will he refuse the cross or take up the cup? Will he go through the horrors of the following 24 hours, which will see him nailed to a cross, bearing the punishment of sins that are not his own? Or will he reject that? Well, here is the crisis, the middle crisis of the book, and it concerns the disciples. 
I think it's a, it's a crisis point for them, isn't it? Will they fail him? Are they going to be a write-off? Are their hearts just too hard? Is it going to be impossible to make good servants out of these disciples? And from chapter 7 onwards, see, Jesus is going to be leaving Jewish territory. I think that's symbolic. He's met such hardness from the crowds, from people, where he's been preaching. He's moving now into Gentile territory. Is he also going to give up on 12 apostles? Are they a dead loss? Well, Jesus prays for them. He prays for them. With an eye always on their progress, he prays for them. And from the heights of heaven, we can be sure that right now Jesus prays for us too. He sees us, he sees our battles, and he's praying for us. Another quote from uh, Kent Hughes, I thought this is quite good. In such a dilemma, it would be easy to second-guess one's obedience. Why did he give such ridiculous orders? Does he even care? But Mark says that Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully. They were straining at the oars. The point is clear. Jesus' focus was upon those who were undergoing difficulty on account of their obedience to him. The human tendency during difficulty is to imagine the face of God with blind eyes. But these verses teach us just the opposite. Followers of Christ in the storms of life are special objects of his omniscient, compassionate care. And this ought to bring us great comfort. He sends, he sees, thirdly, just finally, he speaks, he speaks. Look at verse 48. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because all, they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. It's about 3 a.m., the fourth watch of the night, when Jesus went out to his disciples. By this time, they had been rowing for I mean, hours, pulling against the oars. John tells us in all that time, they'd covered about three and a half miles. He's quite specific. They're about three and a half miles out into the lake at this point. Exhausted, stressed, anxious. You can picture them there, soaked, their little beards dripping water. Only a short while ago, you'll remember, they were caught in a violent storm on these very same waters. And this time, they haven't even got Jesus asleep in the bottom of the boat. He's not even with them this time. It's a scary time for them. And they peer into the, into the gloom around them, and suddenly they see this figure. A figure walking amongst the waves. Now, in Jewish thought, the sea is synonymous with chaos it's a reservoir of evil. That's what the sea is. And the storms are evidence of, of evil at work. Maybe that explains why they take Jesus for a ghost, for a, a phantom stalking the waves, coming to get them. And the whole experience elicits this cry of horror from them. They are now operating on a whole other level of terror in the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the water. It's terrifying for them. And Jesus had been about to pass them by, but it seems to me that seeing their fear, 
there's an immediate response from him. He immediately calls out to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. See, it is the presence of Jesus that dispels all his disciples' fears, isn't it? And here again, Jesus thinly veils his deity, his godness. Take courage, he says, it is I, or more accurately, take courage, I am. I am. Don't be afraid. You may remember that's exactly how God told Moses to identify himself to the people that he was going to down in Egypt. Tell them, I am has sent you. It is exactly the same title used here. I am the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea. The faithful, promise-keeping God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. He sees. He sends. He speaks. He speaks courage to them. Remember. Remember who is with you in the boat. Remember who is watching over the boat. Remember who sent you out on your mission. I am, he says. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Will that be enough to give you courage this week? I hope so. I pray so. In the 1950s, Helen Rosevere publicly declared during a missionary gathering in North England, I'll go anywhere God wants me to. I'll go anywhere God wants me to, whatever the cost. That's what she said. <laughs> she writes, afterwards I went up into the mountains and I had it out with God. Okay, God, today I mean it. Go ahead and make me more like Jesus, whatever the cost. But please knowing myself fairly well, when I feel I can't stand anymore and I cry out, stop, will you ignore my stop and remember that today I said, go ahead. Well, maybe you know the story of Helen Rosevere who went out to the Congo uh, and served there so faithfully. Well, in 1960, while she was there, civil war broke out and all the medical facilities and the missions that she had worked on uh, and established were destroyed. And Helen was among 10 Protestant missionaries who were put under house arrest by rebel forces for several weeks, after which they were uh, moved and imprisoned. She describes the horror of what happens when she tried to escape. They found me, she writes, dragged me to my feet. They struck me over the head and shoulders, flung me on the ground, kicked me dragged me to my feet only to strike me again, the sickening, searing pain of a broken tooth, mouth full of blood, my glasses gone. I mean, she suffered hugely. I'd encourage you to read her book. But later she recounted, on that dreadful night, beaten and bruised, terrified and tormented, unutterably alone, I had felt at last God had failed me. Surely he could have stepped in earlier. Surely things need not have gone that far. I had reached what seemed to be the ultimate depth of despairing nothingness. 
But then, she said, she eventually felt an overwhelming sense of privilege. She writes this, you asked me, when you, she, she said, she, said she, she writes, she said that she felt the sense of the Lord saying this to her. You asked me when you were first converted for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Do you want it? These are not your sufferings, they're mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. She later pointed to the goodness of God, despite all of the evil that was done to her. She wrote, he is so utterly there, so totally understanding. His comfort was so complete, and suddenly I knew, I really knew, that his love was unutterably sufficient. He did love me. He did understand. He was with me. Well, may God grant us a similar faith to that wonderful woman to know his love, to know his overseeing care as we obey and as we head out into the storms that he's sent us out into. The storms, the winds of our culture, the waves of this life, they're not to be trifled with, are they? We're to be a witness to the world of the good news about Jesus. We need to remember that he is with us. I am.